Good morning. He is risen. risen And I find that if you want to feel a touch of the resurrection, then give a little time and think today about how much you have been changed in ways you would have never changed and become a person that you have become that you never would have become unless it were for the power of the work of God in your life, that resurrection power. And we're going to learn a little about that this morning. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, particularly verses 35 to 55, but I want to read in just a moment verses 35 to 49. I did my master's thesis on 1 Corinthians 15. It was called The Resurrection Body of the Believer, a Study of Its Significance for the Apostle Paul. I won't tell you when I wrote it, but we used chisels and stone back then. (laughs) But a small, very small part of this master's thesis uh, was a survey. I surveyed some 500 churchgoers, because I wanted to validate my hunch that the church is kind of indifferent about the resurrection body of the believer. And so that was a central issue. I asked a lot of questions to get a field of understanding about where these questions And the answers were coming from, but basically, people believe Jesus rose from the dead, but they don't think much about their resurrection. And this is kind of a Corinthian thing, you know, as in 1 Corinthians 15. It's kind of a Corinthian thing that the body is kind of a container for the essential person that we sometimes call the soul. And so we don't think much about that body because that body, and you may have found this to be true, but I mean, some people like their bodies, but a lot, not so much. And bodies, just as for the Corinthians, Bodies are kind of a gateway problem. Uh, it's the source of passions and, and the kinds of things that drag down the higher self, the more virtuous self. All of our struggles take place in the body. So Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. But yeah, I'm not so keen on that body thing myself. But you know, if I go on after death, that's enough for me. That would drive Paul, the apostle, nuts. And it did. And he talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15. That's the reason he wrote this section of his letter. And in this, and kind of at the turning point, this crux In verses 12 through 17, Paul establishes 
I mean, it's like, go no further unless you come to grips with what I'm telling you right now. And there in verses 12 through 17, not just once, but twice, this is what he says. He says, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And that all kind of makes us a little bit uncomfortable, but the way Paul words this is that he wants us to confront the fact that if we are not raised like Jesus Christ, then Jesus Christ is not raised. And of course, Paul builds the whole point of that chapter on the fact that he is risen. In fact, Paul's writing them because he is risen. We are here, and generations stacked on generations have gathered in the name of Christ because he is risen. Our future is inextricably linked to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here in chapter 15, Paul writes about the last Adam, which tells us that this is kind of a new Genesis account because we meet Adam in the very beginning. He's the first of God's creation, the highest, if you will. And now, Paul says, there's a last Adam. And you have to keep that in mind. Genesis 1 and 2 is very much in the background of 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 58, the, the whole rest of that section on the resurrection. This is Paul's Genesis account of the new creation. And it includes those of us who call Jesus Christ Lord. Let me read it, starting in verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? You fool. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you are not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. But God gives it a body as he wants, and to each of the seeds its own body. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly is different from that of the earthly. There is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, another of the stars, in fact. One star differs from another star in splendor. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, 
sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. As it is written, and now he cites Genesis 2-7, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam. And we really should think of the last Adam not as if there's a series of Adams and he's at the last, but this is the final Adam. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth. The first human was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so we will bear the image of the man of heaven. Imagine telling caterpillars they're destined to become butterflies. We are the caterpillars. And Paul's trying to tell us that we're destined to become butterflies. Uh, I graduated from Elihu Beard School. And then I went to junior high or middle school. And then I went on to high school. But when I was at Elihu Beard School in the fourth grade, part of an assignment, and it was one of these things where, you know, you get like a glass fish tank and you put caterpillars in it and you watch them eat all this milkweed and then they spin this cocoon and then we wait and one day, out of this cocoon emerges this beautiful monarch butterfly. But the caterpillars are monstrosities. The caterpillars, oh, <laughs> they are so ugly. And they are this pukey green. And their bodies are just, it makes your skin kind of crawl. Do you know what I'm talking about? Can you imagine just like, unless I knew it was going to be a monarch, unless I had already chased monarchs around the flowers in our yard and admired their glory and beauty, I would never have touched such a caterpillar in my life. Now, this helps us just a little bit to realize the chasm between a caterpillar and the glory, the splendor of a monarch butterfly. <laughs> One's just, just, you know, like, can't you do anything but creep? And this other you can't even catch because it's fluttering so beautifully and just dancing on the wind. 
a thing of glory. Paul wrote, what no eye has seen nor ear has heard and no human heart has conceived. God has prepared these things for those who love him. He wrote that to these Corinthians. He wrote that to us too. We may try to picture what we can't imagine, but we cannot. Here, in this chapter of this letter, Paul gives us his telling of what we should hold dear in our heart and that should form our hope every day of our lives and certainly a sense of our destiny because he is risen. This is Paul's telling and there's nothing so specific in all of scripture as what he tells us here. And we are mindful that Paul was blinded by the glory of the risen Christ when he was met by him unexpectedly on the road to Damascus. A man who was bent on prosecuting and persecuting those who believed in Jesus Christ. And that meeting transformed his life so completely, so utterly, that he dedicated himself the rest of his life, whatever the danger, to telling the world about Jesus Christ. And 13 of the 27 letters of our New Testament are the writings of the Apostle Paul. His faith informs ours. His faith was born in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We need to hear what he has to say. He answers the question, how are the dead raised? And in effect, his answer is that in his resurrection, we see the splendor of ours. In his resurrection, we see the splendor of ours. That's a word we don't use an awful lot, but it means supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. I mean, it is fantastic. And Paul does a pretty good job of putting into words the splendor of our resurrection. He pictures this splendor beginning with the splendor of God's creation. In verse 37, he says, as for what you sow, you are not sowing the body, the body that will be. But like just a mere seed. Just two weeks ago, somebody brought a bunch of cherries and I had a cherry. I love cherries. In our first home, the first home that Shelley and I bought as a young married couple, we had two cherry trees. 
And uh, I ate whatever the birds left. Birds like cherries too. And when you finish with a cherry, in fact, if you've ever eaten a cherry before, you're careful about biting into it because right in the middle, middle is a very hard seed. And we even call it the pit of the cherry. That pit you would never imagine if you just left it in the sun to dry and then held it in the palm of your hand. You would never imagine that the cherry that you ate was formed from a tree that bore blossoms, like the blossoms that are so beautiful that we see adorning places in Japan or even the capital of our nation. Those blossoming cherry trees come from an ugly pit just like that. And that's what Paul is imagining here. He says, your body, see, that's what he's talking about it in terms of farming. He says, what you sow <laughs> is about like a pit. And you cannot imagine from that pit what is going to grow and blossom and bear fruit? Unless we already had an example, like me and that monarch. I would never have touched that caterpillar. I might have, well, I would never have touched that caterpillar if it weren't that I knew it was a monarch butterfly. That changed my whole conception of that ugly caterpillar, that squishy caterpillar. In the same way, Paul is saying when we look at creation, we can see a pattern of things that we could have never imagined would transform into these beautiful things of such glory and beauty. Augustine, St. Augustine said, does God proclaim himself in the wonders of creation? No. All things proclaim him. All things speak. Their beauty is the voice by which they announce God, by which they sing. It is you who made me beautiful, not me myself, but you, O oh Lord. And when you, you know, we're city dwellers. And cities, there are beautiful places and incredible buildings and feats of architecture. And in some places there are water features and they just, we call them skyscrapers because they, they do, they scrape the sky. And there's a sense of majesty about them, but every city that has such a center, there are dregs of human life. There's crumbling wreckage and debris. There's exhaust and fumes. We need to get out into nature. We walk the streets and sometimes we don't even hear or see the birds or the clouds or the trees. Some of us don't go beyond the city out into the reaches and meditate and contemplate the glory, the majesty, the true splendor of what God has created. It is a chapel. It is a place of worship. Paul himself 
said in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, that God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his words, Paul's words, his eternal power, his divine nature are seen in creation, are seen. He whom we cannot see is seen as a projection like an artist. We know something about the artist from the art. Contemplate his creation. And then you'll easily imagine what God can do and what he has planned. In fact, Paul wrote in his letter to the Philippians, the third chapter, the 21st verse, he will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Splendor is pictured. We get an idea in creation But splendor is paralleled, Paul says, in the resurrection. And that we see in verse 42. So it is with the resurrection. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Now, to understand verse 44, when it says, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body, we need to jump to verse 45. So look at verse 45. So it is written, the first Adam, and Adam is Hebrew. When you say Adam, you're actually pronouncing, maybe not as poetically as someone who is truly Hebrew, but... It is Hebrew for human, for man, Adam. So when we say the man, Adam, that's actually a tautology, which means that you're just repeating yourself. But I digress. The words in 44, translated natural body and spiritual body, have nothing to do with the body of what is composed, but what is the animating power and realm of the body. So in verse 45, when it says, so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, which is a citation of Genesis 2-7. Then it says, the last Adam, the final Adam, the final human, You see, the final human, for he is the archetype. He is the prototype. He is the model for all humanity, if you will, all human life, all human created by God. He is the prototype for that life going forward beyond death because all of the first Adam and his progeny end in death. Kaput.
when I used to go to rock concerts, if we clapped loud enough and long enough and hollered and howled, we could get the band to come out and do an encore. There's no encore. You can't clap long enough or hard enough to get an encore. Death is final. That's it. And there's nothing beyond it unless he is risen. And he is risen indeed. And Paul is trying to capture for us the dynamic reality of what that means. Those words in verse 44 are not talking about the composition. In fact, the word translated natural or physical, some of your Bibles may even translate it physical, by contrast with spiritual. So you would think, okay, it's sown a physical body, and that's true. But that's not the essence. The essence is it's like first Adam. It's sown as first Adam. It's sown of the same dynamic, animating energy and power. The life of that person is sown and it is raised spiritual power. And now you see what Paul is emphasizing is verse 45 when it says he is the last Adam, the final Adam, life-giving spirit. We believe in a triune God. We talk a lot about the Father and the Son, but the Spirit is the power of God. We're going to be looking at that starting next week. We're going to be looking at the Spirit. We're going to be doing a series on the fruit of the Spirit. It is this power that Paul tells us, that the New Testament tells us, that Jesus tells us, indwells us. You have, I don't know how to put it into the best language, but you have within you, if you belong to Jesus Christ, you belong to him because he has put his spirit in you. You have a piece of the resurrection, the power that raised Jesus from the dead embodying you in your life. The Holy Spirit indwells. And that means you're going to be raised. That's what he's talking about. He says, And the the Jerusalem Bible is the only major translation that goes to the trouble of really trying to capture the essence of sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. This is how they translate it. Because if you don't understand these words that Paul... Paul uses the word that's translated natural, the the word that's used in Genesis 2-7 to talk about a soulish life or a nefesh, which is Hebrew, this vital force. But this isn't a vital force that can conquer death. Jesus conquered death. And so the appropriate adjective for this new 
existence, which is not about the composition, but the dynamic of it, is spiritual body, spiritual existence. And when Paul here contrasts the earthly and the heavenly, the terrestrial and the celestial, he's saying this body that we sow is not what will be, but this body is fit, suited for this realm, this life. But the life of the resurrection is suited to the, the celestial realm. And that's why it is a splendor that Paul talks about our existence. I was going to read from the Jerusalem Bible. This is what it says in verse 44 for, for Paul's writing there. When it is sown, it embodies the soul. When it is raised, it embodies the spirit. If the soul has its own embodiment, so does the spirit have its own embodiment. That's a pretty good translation, but you can see it's a lot more words than you would expect, isn't it? That happens sometimes. This, though, as I said, is a contrast between the breath of natural life and the breath of God, his spirit, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Splendor is also patterned on Christ in verses 47 through 49. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. All are in Adam, the first Adam. Except here today, most of you, all of you, I hope, are of the final man. You are not just in Adam, the first Adam. You are in Adam, the final Adam. That is a massive hope, a massive reconfiguration of the way you and I see the world. You need to think about that. You're in the last Adam. Death has no hold over you. In fact, Paul goes on to say, we have this promised victory in verses 54 through 55. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this body is clothed with immortality, then the saying is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where is your sting? There is no sting for those of us who are in Christ, the final man. For we are patterned on him. And verse 49 is critical. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. I don't know if... Uh, me talking for a little while and saying a lot about what Paul has said is significant. But the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead speaks through his word. 
moves in this place. Speaks to you this morning. This is a vital message. It's not inconsequential. It's not some accoutrement. You know, like when you buy a car, you say, well, for a little extra, you can get this, we call it accoutrement. And so we're going to get like a special feature to our car. The resurrection body is not an accoutrement. It is the essence of who we are. And like a seed, we are going to blossom in this magnificent new reality so far from the baggage, the defeat, the sadness, the sorrow, the brokenness, the viciousness of this world. He is risen. He is risen indeed. God bless you.